Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio for the Almighty. Join us to go more deeply into this great adventure of marriage and family at I Love My Family. Dot us and we are just going to get right to it tonight guys you are going to be amazed so folks we have a very important program tonight and we invite you to give us feedback because we're all about the good beautiful true and one we want to veil as best as we understand it to the facts as we know them and of course anchored in this faith that is revealed to us and uh, tonight we're going to we're going to have the audacity to to do what maybe many people don't do and that is after you've gone through some form of trauma or difficulty to kind of look back and ask the question, you know, in the cloud of war that that maybe is behind us and maybe is still with us, what happened? What did we do? What are lessons that we can learn? And in a particular way tonight, we are going to go with a conversation considering COVID over the last and the and the virus and all that it entailed, the media's role, the government's role, the pharma's role. Um, you know, what did we understand about this? Why? Because we all desire to have the heart of God and to be occasions of his healing, loving presence. And uh, I think it was less than clear. It's still less than clear, but I think we have a lot more answers now and we're very blessed to have with us in this conversation tonight. We're just going to call this COVID Aftermath, What We Learned. And I can't think of any better guest to have on the program than a beloved friend whom I've really gotten to know over the last year and a half. Really, I think he's becoming an expert in this whole arena as a doctor. And I just want to welcome to the program tonight, Dr. Steve Kibi, How are you doing, Dr. Steve? I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. So what's most consequential for us, folks, is that Dr. Steve is uh, a husband and father, devout Catholic, 11 children, 20 grandchildren, and he as a doctor, as an expert in a particular way, found himself in the midst of this with peers who were strongly going with a certain advocacy and narrative and the degree to which the government and pharma and dot-coms were perhaps complicit. And uh, so we're going to go back to that story in just a moment. Before we do, just Dr. Steve, give us a little bit of a portrait of you, who you are and your background and your expertise. So I um, am a pediatrician of 35 years. Um, Just recently, this past April, I have uh, retired from pediatrics. Congratulations. um, Well-deserved. I have been doing some early treatment um, for um, COVID patients for five years. Was a clinical investigator for a research laboratory in Columbus. Um, They did really fine work. Um, We did a lot of studies over the five years uh, involving um, therapeutic agents, could be for asthma, mostly involving children, of course. Um, We did, I did um, several studies involving the flu vaccine, some other um, some other vaccines, uh, meningitis vaccine and so forth. Coincidentally, um, even um, had some involvement with uh, the BioNTech uh, vaccine made by Pfizer. And um, so I was, I was done the early part of that, that study as well for adolescents. Personally, um, as you said, uh, father, grandfather, father of 11, grandfather of 26, and, um, and, and also kind of an itinerant musician. Fabulous. And you are very gifted and we are so blessed to have you with us tonight. And by the way, folks, again, I can't emphasize strongly enough that we can just come to the table 
respectfully attending to what is true, to have the humility to change. Uh, I think as I have been in this conversation with Dr. Steve for over a year now, and you're going to hear that story in just a bit, um, just to, to proclaim the fact that, you know, we are availed to truth as it is verifiable, as it is peer reviewed, as we understand it. And we invite us all to kind of have that humility with what in mind, the good, right? God is good. His very nature is good. The Hippocratic Oath asks doctors to, to do no evil. And, um, and that's what really burns in the heart of our brother here, Dr. Steve, and, and other very good doctors. Before we get to the story, though, I'm inclined to ask the question. There are two characters to the story who I think are quite consequential because they both were vaccinated, both at one point approved of the vaccination, and became maybe some of the strongest voices who attended to this, again, idea of what is the good. One is Robert Malone, and the other is Peter McCullough. So as we may use uh, invoke them through the duration of the program at any time tonight, uh, they bring extraordinarily credibility to the facticity, if you will, to the truth of what we're facing, at least from a health standpoint. Um, could you just maybe give us a, a brief um, 411 on each of these doctors? Well, Dr. Malone was, was a uh, research PhD. He was heavily involved in the early studies, heavily involved in the, in the development of, uh, you know, in its infancy of the messenger RNA technology mm -hmm. that, you know, later became a, a staple for the, this um, current genetic therapy that, that we call a vaccine, that they call a vaccine. So very credible. Uh, many regard him as the founder of the mRNA technology, but let's be fair, minimally, he played an extraordinary influence, but he understood in its details. And that's important to note, folks, because part of this story is about um, just accepting what peers are saying and not doing the deep dive into the real research at the molecular level, which Dr. McCullough, I'm sorry, um, Dr. Malone, Robert Malone was definitely uh, an expert in. And so Peter McCullough, tell us a little bit about Dr. McCullough. So Peter McCullough is a um, he's a cardiologist, an epidemiologist, um, you know, infectious disease specialist um, out of Texas, and um, you know very very esteemed uh, head of departments and on boards and advisory, highly published um, in in the industry, highly respected physician, which had changed when he became very outspoken about the treatment of COVID, especially in the early, early phases. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, he actually, you know, described a, a protocol for the treatment, described the pathophysiology and the, the natural history of COVID infection as it occurs in humans. And then um, was highly motivated to, uh, to use his observations and along with several other physicians who were, again, at the same time were collaborating in, in the treatment plan. And if I can take you back just a little bit Please. In, in historically, so back when COVID came to the world as, as we know it, in the middle, middle to latter part of 2019, then moving into 2020, it seemed to have really uh, generated its beginnings. It's, uh, Wuhan, China, it's moving through, through the countries and, and, you know, now we're into a situation where it may come to the United States. We're considering um, what we do, lockdown borders, and then finally into March um, where we're, you know, into, into a full a full lockdown, uh, you know, everything, the country is shut down. So during this time, the level of fear over this virus and, and, and its effects were unprecedented, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, understandably so. We there didn't were, know. There were a lot of, 
we didn't we didn't know and and so then everybody uh everybody was doing the best they can to try to figure out what we can do so that was great you know the government was trying to figure out how to keep the borders safe how to keep the, their own countries their own people safe advisors were trying to uh, understand epidemiologically what we can do and so forth so um, so that was that was super important. But when you say look back and heal, there were some things that were done, and I think I think you know we need to all look back and look at it and question. Back in the in the very early part, the medical community was treating this illness um, incorrectly. You know, they were treating it you know in a different fashion. I believe more like an acute respiratory distress mm-hmm. syndrome, because they were seeing strong pulmonary involvement of this virus, and so they were um, putting them on ventilators very very quickly and um you know then they, they and they found out that that was a, a big mistake mm-hmm. uh, people were on the ventilator they were this disease was more an issue of microclotting and thrombosis as opposed to an infectious production of mucus you know i'm going to get a little bit out of my my range here but the, the bottom line is, is is everybody would agree you know the ventilator was allowing the virus mm-hmm. to propagate mm-hmm. um people were breathing in their own virus it was you know again it was it was hyper concentrated the virus had has an incredible propensity to attack lung tissue that's where the these you know so-called ace2 re- um, receptors are are involved where the spike protein can invade. So this was just a, a recipe for disaster. And we even, you know, we even know that if a person got onto a ventilator, they they probably had about a 10% chance of survival. So that was there was a, there were some mistakes. You know, there were people sequestered in in New York in nursing homes and so forth. So there was a real significant concentration of death. Mm-hmm. Um, there was at that time it was it was the cause of of everything and in fact and and i know this for sure talking to some physicians who are willing to talk about it i I know a hospitalist that told me they were instructed by the by their administration to put down the covid diagnosis on anything that was close to covid so that meant if anything that was cardiorespiratory um that meant covid and so now we had with pcr testing that became the gold standard for defining COVID, right? The gentleman who invented or, uh, you know, brought forth the PCR testing said, this is a laboratory test. This is not a, a means of making the decisions that were made only on this test. A lot of decisions were based on whether this test was positive or not. Number one. Number two is that it was highly amplified. What does that mean? It means that the test originator, originators would say that you know, an amplification above 26 would be not accurate. So in other words, I mean, you can dial down with a microscope and you can go really so fine that you can find everything. You know, there's dust in everything, right? Where, mm-hmm. Whereas you look, look look in your house and, you know, there's, there's dust and it's insignificant, right? So all of a sudden it became so sensitive that any fragment of dead virus, anything, you know, previous viral triggers, could cause this test to be positive. Mm-hmm. So enough to say that that test was over overcalling things. There were, death was being overcalled by um, everything that was coming out, you know, as far as death certificates, and it was being overcalled by hospitals. And we didn't do a great job in treatment as a medical uh, profession. And also, um, you know, this whole thing, you know, people sequestering in the, in, improperly. Now, I'm not here to throw anybody under the bus mm-hmm. in, in this situation. You know, be, be, let's be very clear. And I think that this is just all for discussion. We have to look right. back and say, right. what could we have done better? I would just say, okay, to the medical community, here's this 
is that if I'm wrong, fine, tell me, but, but at least look if, you know, look at this and, and say, well, well, admit that there were some, some things that, mm-hmm. some factors. Folks, you're tuned into Ignite Radio Live, and we are so blessed to be looking back over the last few years and really trying to understand what lessons can we learn uh, on the whole COVID thing. Uh, And we're so blessed to have Dr. Steve Keeby giving a lot of insight into what doctors were thinking back then. At the outset, Dr. Steve, as you're speaking, what occurs to me, and we know this quite well now, it seems fairly established that this was a virus that was manufactured in a lab in Wuhan. I don't know if there's any dispute to that, any reasonable dispute to that right now. And I'd say, secondly, there's another thing here that I wonder if you could comment on, and that is what we used to do in looking for information and having a high level of credibility was simply Google. We'd Google those terms and we'd find results, and we generally you know, regarded that as truth. Well, what seemed to be changing profoundly in the past two years to me and to many others and commentators is the degree to which certain results, even medical results, empirically peer-reviewed results were being suppressed. So there's kind of an emergence of an awareness of something's going on here that engages the medical community, pharma, that includes uh, the government, and also includes to some significant extent those who are telling the story, particularly dot-coms and newspapers, that are making it kind of difficult to really, uh, again, back to the Hippocratic Oath, what is what is doing evil and what is doing good? When were those question marks kind of appearing over your head? So there was the disenchantment for me began when we started to deviate from what seemed to be common sense. And we started to deviate from from actual evidence based sort of thinking. Mm -hmm. okay, and in discussion. So there was and there became there became a segregation in this discussion. And you said suppression. There became there became a narrative that became very important to promote. And it seemed like anything that, that any discussion that was counter to that narrative was suppressed, mm-hmm. squashed, or actually persecuted. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's not the way, that's not the way we practiced medicine before there was mm-hmm. an open discussion. And, you know, there's been snake oil salesmen and there's, you know, throughout, and <laughs> yep. there's, there's been people that, that have tried to promote things that needed to be squashed. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's a, there, you know, there was a difference. Those were people that were uncredentialed and, you know, historically they were, they were bad actors and they were, they were just con men, mm-hmm. but the people like Robert Malone and um, Peter McCullough, I mean, to, to all of a sudden go ahead and, and attack, you know, these, types their characters because they are questioning the narrative top of their field that that became that became a problem top of their field and so what was the narrative that was that was so powerful it it, it seems you know one is we got a problem we got a virus that is a big problem number two is we can find a solution um and and the solution was certain medical therapies that were attempted you know doctors trying to use their medical acumen okay but they didn't, this was a new type of disease, like I explained before, and the physicians were making some grave mistakes mm-hmm. in the way they were treating. And they, you know, and, but there was a group of physicians like Peter McCullough and another guy named uh, Pierre Corey. They were pulmonologists and intensivists working, working in the field. And they were, again, highly renowned, and they were seeing, they were looking at people dying with certain treatment and saying, well, 
well, we're going to, we're going to go outside the box here and we're going to, we're going to go and, and use steroids. Okay. And then we're going to go outside in the box and we're going to try to use some, some medications off label that we know that we know have some antiviral uh, properties or anti antimicrobial properties. Let's try it. Okay. And why not? If you've got a whole big catastrophe going and we don't know what we're doing, you know, we're left to try to be, you know, creative. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what happened was the creativity was immediately suppressed. There were things that were just becoming so inconsistent. There was a medication um, called hydroxychloroquine Mm -hmm. that was, was showing some promise. And, and, you know, this was a safe medication. And, and keep it in mind that, that as a pediatrician, every, every medical personnel that, that would be listening to this, any, you know, primary doctor would, would say, we use off-label medicines every single day. Mm-hmm. What off-label means is that it's a medication that's not been tested and proven in a certain disease process. Mm-hmm. We, may, we may find in our experience that it works in another disease process, and, and we use it as long as it's safe. So if safety is is proven there's nothing wrong with trying something on another disease mm-hmm. okay and and if it's working we t- constantly talk to each other colleagues hey i'm using this for that anecdotal stuff becomes actual therapy that that really helps now you know there's there's certainly a degree where where that has to be monitored and so forth because it can get out of control so we have to protect sure. patients that were under treating or inappropriately treating okay the problem was is that there, beca- there were studies that were coming out that were poorly done, okay? Like, I'll give you a, for instance, like for hydroxychloroquine, it was hugely important in the early part of the disease, in the first mm-hmm. three to five days initiation, or in, in a prophylactic manner, it was being used anecdotally and then studied by these other physicians, and they were bringing these papers to the journal, New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, and they were just being refused to be looked at. Mm. But then very quickly, a study, let's say, on hydroxychloroquine that was, you know, again, we talked about it needs to be used early on. So then for one study, they used hydroxychloroquine. They, they were giving it later in the course in hospitalized right. patients. Much later. And so, so they, mm-hmm. much, and so then they said, okay, well, then now it does not work. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they weren't working. There's another study where, <clears throat> where they were a huge land, uh, landmark study. He brought the hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic. And during that study, you know, he quoted that during the first days that they, they used the hydroxychloroquine and it had no effect. But then, then another, um, PhD, David Wiseman went through the data and realized that they didn't account for shipping. These things were happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. That we don't know about. So, so it, when you actually track the shipping, you are finding out that that because of shipping taking two to three days for the patient for the study person to get the product, that actually the days they were getting it later in the course. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. when the data was gone over by people who know how to how to look at these things, there was a forty percent improvement in hydro, you know, using hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic or early treatment management. And what will happen is that you have um, the general physician like myself, who is a high volume, we make money by seeing high volume. Mm. We do not have time. Mm. None of us have time to look at studies. We have only time to listen to the person who d- does the studies or the, you know, we'll look at the title of a study. And then if we get a little bit extra time, we'll look at the abstract. And then, then even maybe we'll look at, at the results in the end. The, the truth is 
is that we really don't dive into the study. And, and again, I, I think there's a challenge for all of us um, that are in the front line is that unfortunately we have to understand that studies are, are, are not being properly done, mm-hmm. that studies are being biasly, biasly reported mm-hmm. and then fitting a narrative. And so here's the thing. The narrative became medications off-label do not work. We're not going to study them. That is just, you know, why are we not going to study them when, when people are saying they're working? I mean, in, past, in the history of medicine, if something was starting to work, we'd put it to the test, mm-hmm. to the peer review testing and so forth. The thing is, is these were just blatantly refused. And then the people, the Peter McCullough's and the Pierre Corey's um, of, of the world were being shut down, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, the people that were supporting the narrative were, were being exalted, okay? You know, there's smart people on both mm-hmm. sides, right? And and you, you just have to, there are smart people that looked at these studies and said, and they've been looking at studies for their whole life, and they said, you know, these studies are underpowered. That means there's not enough patients. The data is is actually massaged. So, you know, again, part of my disenchantment, I'm, I'm, I'm a pediatrician looking at this stuff from the outside and I'm getting, I'm seeing things that, that just aren't adding, adding up. Okay. And why can't we talk about this? And why does ivermectin, why does hydroxychloroquine get totally, totally kiboshed? Okay. What's going on here? Did you see the Guardians of the Galaxy? Did you watch the Packer game? How's your portfolio? Pizza is awesome. What we talk about doesn't just reveal what's important to us. It reveals who's important to us. This week, take a risk to grow deeper. Consider throwing in one of these. What's your biggest challenge right now? Hey, what can I pray for you for? What can I do to make your life easier right now? How about joining us for Mass this Sunday? Yeah, and coming over for breakfast. Let's pray the Holy Communion we receive correspond to a holy community we live. This has been a Mass Impact Moment. Join the great adventure at massimpact.us. to invite you to join us every day in setting aside just one minute to pray a simple prayer to the Holy Spirit. Join us now as we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. For ourselves we pray. O most Holy Spirit, come and ignite the great fire of your love. Set it ablaze in our minds and hearts. For all families we pray. O Most Holy Spirit, come and ignite the great fire of your love. Set it ablaze in our minds and hearts. For our church and our parish in particular, we pray. O Most Holy Spirit, come and ignite the great fire of your love. Set it ablaze in our minds and hearts. For our world, we pray. O Most Holy Spirit, come and ignite the great fire of your love. Set it ablaze in our minds and hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. That's it. Pretty simple, but pretty powerful. Join the prayer at massimpact.us. Not just a moment, a movement. As you're sharing all this, uh, Dr. Steve, I'm very mindful of other doctors who had the courage and audacity To go to the roots of their training, which is to say, again, based upon the standard of good, to ask questions and to seek that which was empirical because they're seeing people dying. 
They're seeing people dying and they're asking the questions, what might I do to change, to, 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 to turn this ship around? One of them, as you know, is uh, the Dr. Vladimir Zelenko out of New York. God rest his soul. God rest his soul, who developed the quote unquote Zelenka protocol, which again was very suppressed uh, by the larger medical community, dismissed, disparaged, but his results are like 95% greater than the rest of the community. In fact, folks, even you can question, so to speak, Wiki as a source, but you can even see some of the solid established data. One of them, based upon the study that Zelenko did on his protocol, is the combination of what he had prescribed resulted in five times less hospitalizations and deaths and putting flesh on this you know going back to 21 was of course you know the layer of families that were in conflict because we lacked confidence in the sources we lacked confidence in the data we saw some things that were working you had ivermectin it was being uh, suggested as something that was remedial and accomplishing certain things many were hearing that rightly and then that was being suppressed by the mainstream and reduced to some kind of horse medicine or whatever the case may be but 19 I'm sorry, 2021, early on in that year, the Schleters, we, seven children, uh, were talking about COVID and talking about the vaccine and for our parents in particular. Now, we're dealing with very educated. One brother's a surgeon who is with us, by the way, to this day and was back then. Uh, lawyers, uh, you know, PhDs, etc., having a conversation with the same good. And it was difficult. It was difficult because of the lack of confidence in the data of what we should do. Now, you happen to know my parents. You and I were introduced at some point. I'm not sure what that connection was. But for me, simply, it was coming to somebody like you and saying, you're respectable, you're reputable. Um, we have some questions here. I mean, just we want to do the right thing, certainly for all of us and our children. But as we think about our parents and their situation, um, what is the data? What is happening here? And I recall you at that time uh, having, again, having the integrity to ask some of the questions that Dr. Zelenko was asking. And not necessarily, I didn't really come to a solid conclusion at that point, I don't think. I mean, you saw some some writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say, secondly, yeah, yeah. and this can't be underestimated, and I want to turn it over to you um the degree to which you felt pressure stronger you felt coercion tell us a little about that pressure you felt as a common doctor wanting to do good there was just an incredibly uh, biased narrative going on okay so you know we were talking about the medications off-label medications all the kind of, uh, were being outlawed you talked about medicaid studies that were quickly rushed and quoted then pharmacy boards and the medical boards were saying actually saying this can't be used, okay? Now, it's been used, they've been used for other treatments and so forth, but no, you cannot use it for treating COVID. So Unbelievable. There was, so there, there's narrative, it just said you, you you can't all of a sudden, but but why not? But then these, these shoddy studies that, that made it so. Then, you know, you started to think like, there was just this incredible, that we have the great hope, we have the cure, it's going to be this, this vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, now, all hands were on deck to the narrative to support the vaccine. Mm. Now, in, in a moment, you know, if, if time permits, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of detail because I've, given, I've taken a deep dive into the actual, the actual meetings that went on behind the scenes, a deep dive into the actual data that was presented that allows these medica- the, the vaccine to come forward. And, and I'm going to tell you, I would just challenge um, without without belaboring those those technical points, I would challenge any of my colleagues to to actually look at the mm-hmm. actual studies and the actual meetings and hearings that brought this thing forward 
and I would challenge them to look at it and, and, and tell me how they would ever, ever accept this had it been for any other medication or any other therapeutic, would they accept what's going on? Mm -hmm. So I want to just go backwards just for Please. a second. There is a lot of money that does push a narrative, okay? Mm -hmm. We do have, uh, you know, we have, do have pharmaceutical companies, you know, let's, let's make no mistake about it. They have a high level of, uh, of profit, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 billion for a medication to come out, uh, come out on the formulary. You're talking about Lipitor, Crestor, you know, some, all the things that you see on the commercials, right? Um, those medications, when they are approved and come forward, they are a big windfall for a pharmacy company. Okay, that's just fact. I mean, we're not mm -hmm. we're not creating conspiracy here. That's the, that's the truth. Now, they also are the ones that drive the studies. Okay, um, and so I was looking at this, and I started talking to another one of my colleagues who was deeper, thirty five years into doing studies. And I, you know, I started to say, I'm starting to look at this data. They're using so limited numbers in their what we call confidence intervals of their data results are so wide. So in other words, how repeatable is this study? Okay. And you know, you're supposed to be up in the 90%, right? We, you know, it's definitely more than 80, 75 and 80. You want it to be, but we were finding, I was going back and look at these studies that they were presenting with confidence intervals from negative 360 to 75. And even in the hearings, the actual presenters saying, you know, we really can't make statements about the effectiveness of this product based on such small numbers and confidence intervals, yet they did. So then what happens is the common guy like you and me, we say, me, like me and my fellow frontline doctors, you know, uh, on the frontline primary care, we just sit there and say, yeah, there are studies that support it. Well, yes, there were studies that, quote, support it, but they were terrible studies. Mm -hmm. And so we have to go back. We have to go back and, and look at those. They were terrible studies. So I'm looking at this stuff. And so I call up my colleague in the industry and I say, hey, you know, are we able to trust um, data? I mean, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm kind of giving him examples of these studies and this poor, this, this shoddy data. He says, hey, Steve, he said, I've been in this for 35 years, and, and, you know, the truth is is that when I was hired by a drug company because I'm pretty intuitive, I'm really good with numbers, I, you know, I, I, I'm gifted in looking at, at these things, and my job was to look at a certain study before it went forward and eliminate the variables that would make the study fail and promote the variables that would make this succeed, mm. okay? So, so can I pause you? Just like I, let me pause you a second because that is not inconsequential. That is a headline. I mean, it's a headline over the question: What are we learning from the past two years? So, repeat what you said again, and let us digest what you said. His response was, which I think is, um, if you will, emblematic of the entire health industry. Say it again. He said that I was hired specifically to look at studies. You know, give it its best opportunity to succeed. And that's because of the money, as you suggested. I mean, we know factually, I just want to say this. We know factually yeah. the NIH is funded predominantly by companies who seek to get their products on shelves. That That's fact. That is not conspiracy theory. The NIH is funded by companies, pharma companies, who seek to get their product on shelves. So as a mere matter of, of shall we say, economy, um, they're going to bring to the table professional 
professionals and experts who are going to validate their product in many instances. And, you know, I, I don't know if you can also just say a, a quick word about the uniqueness of these particular vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, going off the rails of the, of the normal approval protocol by the FDA. You know, the FDA, their job is to, to monitor this, right? Their job is to, you know, a pharmacy brings a product to the FDA and, and, and they look to the FDA to look at their data and, and, and you know, give approval to it. And there, there's a subgroup of the FDA advisory group to look at the data and tell the, um, the FDA, you know, whether they think they should approve, advise them on whether to approve. Okay, but, but back to the, the money trail, it is fact that there is a lot of incentive. I mean, the FDA lives on uh, pharmacy money, okay? And we're not going to, you know, like without trying to create all sorts of conspiracies, just factual. I mean, we just have to wonder if money corrupts, right? We're, this, mm-hmm. the, the whole story is, I mean, we have to wonder what does money do? You know, it's a pretty big temptation. People can be very corrupt and unethical when it comes down to billions upon billions of dollars that mm-hmm. could be made. If it's in the form of application that that supports the fda's budget right there are fda um board members that have been you know worked for big pharma you know and and i'm going to leave that to the people who who dive into that i'm for sure i'm just going to throw it out from my own personal experience to look at the studies that are being put out that are incredible and that are that are telling the whole country what to do and making decisions Mm -hmm. on how to treat this entity um, the studies are unbelievably atrocious. You know, for instance, the, the, um, the approval of a childhood vaccine would move forward with a unanimous decision, unanimous mm-hmm. decision. It just doesn't sit right that the decision to mandate, make, that means everybody, you all mm-hmm. have to get vaccinated with this product that's still of an experimental product. We're going to tell you all at the risk of losing your job and your livelihood, we're going to tell you that you cannot question the safety and efficacy of this vaccine. So there was the arrogance and the and the you know, unanimous decisions to make this go forward. And it was all backed on the heels of data that is just astoundingly rushed mm-hmm. and improper. OK, mm-hmm. so, you know, w- you know, we can we can dive into that. Um but well, but a quick word on that, just a punctual point from Dr. Elizabeth yeah. Evans was the co-founder of the UK Medical Freedom Alliance. And just one quick quote that encapsulates what many felt hundreds and thousands of doctors agreed with these principles. I'll quote the COVID-19 vaccines are not proven to be safe or effective. We believe that it is reckless and unnecessary to roll out these essentially experimental vaccines using a completely new mRNA technology to millions of people when there is only only limited short-term safety data, no evidence that they will prevent transmission of the virus, and no long-term safety data to rule out late-onset negative effects like autoimmune diseases, infertility, and cancers, unquote. Continue. Okay, so let's, let's be clear about this vaccine. To approve a vaccine under an emergency use um, action, for that vaccine to be approved, there has to be no therapeutics that are effective to treat this disease okay mm-hmm. if there are therapeutics that are proven to to be effective then the vaccine would never have been approved for emergency use mm-hmm. okay so then that calls into question 
you just have to wonder, so why did the, were the studies so biased and the narrative so heavy against medications that a lot of physicians were and protocols that were working yes. for this, yes. this uh, disease? Huge. Okay. Secondly, secondly, you have to realize that from, from the start of the pandemic, uh, the lockdown, within two weeks, you know, and I know this from, from people that are inside this situation at WHO, FDA and CDC, within two weeks, and, and we all knew it, the public knew that this was a disease that was affecting people that were over 75 years old, mo- for the most part, 80 years old, and had comorbidities, hmm. okay? This was not a disease of the young, okay? So despite that, hmm. we maintained this um, lockdown to the detriment of all the collateral damage, and that would be that would be um, people not getting their cancer screening. That would be people not going going out. People livelihood. People wearing masks and children children you know getting it, fears. The suicide rate mm-hmm. increasing. Teenage survey saying that one third of the kids going through this lockdown are you know, of adolescents. You know, ten year olds old on up are and teens are considering suicide. So this wasn't taken in consideration, okay? So so then we go fast forward to the to the vaccines coming out and and then this this vaccine became just what we needed, right? To change the tide. But then we go back to the data, okay, that brought forth I mean, the very first study by Pfizer, when they took 40,000 patients and the 40,000 patients were basically healthy patients between the ages of 25 and 55. And there were only, of that population, there were only like about 1,800 patients that were 80 years or older. So they were taking a population that was very healthy and they were studying them for a very short time. And now let's be clear about this particular um, platform, okay? We're talking about a genetic vaccine okay Mm. a genetic therapy it's actually more accurately called genetic therapy and in fact Mm. that's what it was called genetic therapy but in moderna and pfizer the the decision makers they said we cannot we this is genetic therapy but people will never accept it if we call it genetic therapy interesting let's call it a vaccine okay so then a vaccine was defined as a as something that was given to a, pa- a person to prevent the disease. It became now it became a vaccine is something that stimulates an immune response. That's it. Stimulates an immune response. That's what the definition of a vaccine now is. Hey, everybody. I'm John Paul Schleter and one of six children, which means we're pretty busy. In fact, one weekend, we had eight soccer games, four cross-country meets, and a bunch of other events. But you know what the best part of it was? Besides Mass, of course. Setting aside time as a family to talk and pray. I want to invite you to go right now to MassImpact.us. Check out the Live It Gathering Guide. It's new every week. A great way for families to talk and pray based upon Sunday readings. Your kids will grump at the idea. Expect it, but trust me, it will be the best 30 minutes you will spend in a long, long time. It will help you all experience God alive in your family relationships that make your house a home. Join us now at massimpact.us. Thanks, Mom. That was pretty awesome. 
We believe that he said what he meant and meant what he said when he proclaimed that his body is real food and his blood is real drink. Simply put, Mass Impact is a nonprofit movement seeking the heart of God in the very heart of His Catholic Church. Uh, people just keep kept coming and coming. Not just in a moment, but, but to surrender their entire lives. We desire our hearts to be moved by what moves His. And to see that happening monthly. We are responding to an urgent call at an urgent time. The recent Pope's John Paul said, now's the time. This is the moment. We're taking big steps in faith throughout our diocese and beyond. I want to buckle my chin strap and take the field. And we are seeing tremendous growth. I mean, I'm just roused and emboldened to mission, to do something. We cannot do it alone. We need you right now. Please partner with us. Go to massimpact.us right now and click on the Contribute tab. If you and I respond in faith right now, we will see souls in heaven who would not have been there had we said no. It was nothing short of amazing. Does it have that same kind of effect on you? Please go to massimpact.us and contribute. It's time to move. For our listeners' sake, very clearly uh, worthy of our questioning is the degree to which the CDC changed the definition of vaccine at least three times Contrary to any time in medical history, and ask yourself the question, the importance of these text science books that that uh, doctors, studying be doctors and whatever, how important it is to have terms that are solid. But here you find them changing the definition to correspond to public acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. So so, the you know, the, the goal, you'll find that the, the goalpost continually moves. The rules continually change and the narrative that are supportive are supported and and anything contra is suppressed and not only suppressed but but actually to the tune of physicians cannot could not speak out and still are afraid to speak out because if they go against the narrative they can lose their job mm-hmm. now but I, I you know we can we can go there that that's super important but i want to just go back and make sure that everybody understands why did you question this narrative. I mean, it's, it's a vaccine. It's helping people. We did vaccines for everybody. We made people get the polio vaccine. Mm-hmm. Why are you questioning it? You should get it. It's for the good of mankind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it goes back to the, the reasons that, that we said, first of all, this is a genetic therapy and it's not a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Secondly, you just got to sit there and say, okay, genetic therapy. I just got to um, wrap my hands around arms around that. Genetic therapy means you're, what you're doing, they're injecting a genetic sequence into your body, that, a roadmap. And what they're saying is it's going to go in your arm, go into your lymph nodes, your body. They told, they told us that it was going to last a very short time. It was going to tell our own body, use our own body's machinery and, and raw material to actually manufacture the most toxic part of the organism. So it was genetic therapy. All vaccines previously were using parts of the pathogen. It was either dead parts of a dead pathogen or else parts of a weakened pathogen, like live, a vi- live pathogen that was weakened, like measles, mumps, or rubella. Okay. Dead pathogens like that are the diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus. Okay. So, so this is totally, totally different. Never been done before. Now, previously to this genetic therapy, okay, there will be the statement study. This has been 
studied for 10 to 15 years. That's very true. It has been studied for 10 to 15 years. But the problem is there has not been effective studies. So mm-hmm. the animal studies, the ferrets died, the mice miscarried, and the monkeys were left disabled. That was the results of the studies. Okay, mm-hmm. There were no human studies on genetic therapy used in this type of manner to promote the, the an immune response, an effective immune response by the body to defeat the disease. Mm. Okay, so the, it never happened before. So to the point of the doctor you mentioned, um, you, you just got to sit there and say, is the you know safety? Are you concerned about this? Now I can tell you, I was involved in in the research for Pfizer. We should actually make this a you know a point too because I you know I'd like to I'd like to dive into the actual research, I'd like to dive yes. into the questions, the questions that when I was involved in the research, I, and I will tell you that, that I actually was able to talk to the top researchers in Pfizer and ask them candidly questions about this vaccine. Mm-hmm. Questions like, how long does this last in the body? Okay, it's making spike, our body's making spike protein. Now, you have to start thinking, is it possible that we can create a situation where our own body is going to react, overreact against this spike protein and over and then against our own body parts, right? Mm. And are we going to overreact to the next infection? You know, the second thing is going to be, is this an effective vaccine? And I, I probably would like to leave, you know, this thought with when we rolled out this so-called vaccine we rolled it out in the height of a pandemic Mm -hmm. and i challenge any of my epidemiological friends and people on the front line like my primary care doctors i want to ask you the question when we were using antibiotics we always knew that if you didn't kill the organism if you weren't decisive with a certain antibiotic it bred mutation Mm -hmm. super that's how we got super bugs all right. We knew that. OK. How is this not different that we're using a vaccine that we know the standards for this vaccine to be put forward were only to be at least 50 percent effective, wow. which actually it failed to stand. It failed those standards in many of the tests. Wow. But they they coaxed it along through. OK. By when I'll tell you more about that in the next segue. But they failed. OK. Whether it's even a little effective or a lot effective. We know in the field, everybody knows people that have been re, that have been vaccinated and, and that have gotten infected. Everybody. Mm-hmm. So we know it doesn't stop the infection. The CDC admits that it does not stop the spread, which mm-hmm. they said in the beginning. That was the reason why you're supposed to vaccine vaccinate everybody is to stop the spread. The only thing that they actually now say is that it it lessens the disease. Okay. And so then, you know, that opens up another risk benefit discussion when you're talking about children and childhood vaccine. So I'd love to talk about the risk, the risk benefit ratio of the vaccine for children, because that's where my, my expertise is. And that's where I did, did a deep dive. But I also, I just want to, again, fall back in the reemphasis that we took a vaccine that was only partially effective. And we know it looking back, but they knew it back then. We just threw this vaccine and told everybody to get vaccinated in the height of a pandemic. Well, here's the deal. When you give a vaccine, there is 
the reason, the beauty of giving vaccines at, when you're not in a pandemic is you give the immune system an opportunity to respond. Okay. And in the response, there is, there can be competition. So what happens is the, the, the response isn't just a t- on switch. I'm immune. I can defeat this, this e- organism. It is a slow process of T cells, B cells, the immune system developing this full bodied immunity, right? And so what we did was we threw on this vaccine into a pandemic where people were working through their immunity, their bodies were working mm-hmm. through the immunity. And, and the data is very clear that, that with two weeks after the vaccine is given, that that's the height of people getting COVID. Mm-hmm. Their bodies, their, their immunity is whacked because there's, what we do is we create mm-hmm. a competition um, for the, for the um, toxic protein and the, the, the virulent protein wins because the immunity is, is kind of just trying to make its way in fighting the, that organism. So in effect, it's actually weakened mm-hmm. by the vaccine. And, and, you know, and I, uh, you know, next segue, I'll, I'll, we can talk about studies that show even what we call negative effect, efficacy of the vaccine. In, in essence, people are getting worse because they're getting vaccinated. And I'll tell you about studies that they're finding that this vaccine, if it even works, it's only working for a couple of months. OK, mm-hmm. so now we're going to be vaccinating every two months. Is ever you know and, and just think, just think if it's real. If we could imagine that it was effective, uh, and, and, it, and it really and it really worked, I guess. Like if I'm going to save my life, I know it's going to save my life. I would take a shot every two months, right? You know, people take insulin daily. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, sure. But the thing is, is that they cannot tell us anything more than it may decrease the hospitalization they, they can't they can't tell us that that it that it really does anything better for children and so forth so i'm going to kind of close on that if, if that's okay with you we definitely yes. want to continue like this to. conversation um, yes. a few a few punctual notes as we land here knowing you've opened the door to a lot of reflection and honest attention to the data and the facts. And we want to be a platform where we have this conversation. Just, Steph, your comment. I want to make a comment, then we'll land this episode this time. No, that I was just going to help land it. Dr. Steve, we're so grateful for you for taking this time. And yes, this is just the beginning. We look forward to continuing the conversation. And um, I have so many thoughts. And even in our connection, Dr. Steve, that you and I had while Greg was so sick with COVID and the support and and, uh, wisdom that you brought. So folks, just the degree to which this is personal uh, and the importance of us, particularly in those closest to us, finding a place where we can be humble and open to the truth. That may be one of the biggest takeaways. Can we have the conversation? In particular, some of you may know, uh, you know, we're very close to the doctors and the 
National Catholic Medical Association radio program on EWTN called Dr. Doctor, hosted by Tom McGovern and Chris Stroud, who's our daughter's father-in-law. Great respect, great love, great regard. These are godly Catholic men who are deeply interested in the good. I will say this, and we've had this conversation. We need to have these kinds of conversations. They're episode 227. They showcase what I would say is the narrative. They showcase the mainstream narrative that essentially, you know, held up the vaccines as effective for preventing hospitalization and death. They had a Dr. Paul Carson, who is a critical care pulmonologist, um, another dear friend, Dr. Eustace Fernandez. My point is this. I've offered to them an opportunity where we might bring to the table Dr. Steve Kibbe, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Robert Malone, to have the conversation where there is good exchange and conversation about the data. And I do believe it would land with the kinds of um, punctual points that, Dr. Steve, you are making. So, folks, with all of that said, um, I just want to ask one more question. I know you got to go, Dr. Steve, but to me, the takeaway is, okay, all of this in the cloud over the last two years, where do we look for guidance in matters as critical as, as COVID to find the right answers? Well, there, there has to be some humility here. We have to look for transparency, and there has to be candid discussion, and we have to put out, put aside the, you know, our feelings monetarily. We have to put aside our feelings that, you know, no one wants to know that we were wrong. I mean, we live in an, I'm going to tell you, we live in a proud profession and somewhat arrogant profession, Mm. and we don't like to admit we were wrong, and it's very hard to go back and look at that. But we have to look on both sides. We have to look at, at where we didn't get it right and start moving forward. Folks, so bless you. Tune in to Ignite Radio Live with Greg Stephanie and Dr. Steve Keeb. We've opened the door to a difficult time. We want to evaluate the past two years. In looking at COVID, our response, we didn't even address, nor was it the focus of this to, to address, to what end? If all of this was uh, sort of a juggernaut of the government, pharma, and big tech industry to, to point us in a certain direction, to what end? That's another conversation, another time. But it's enough for us to say, brothers and sisters, let's be attuned, humbled, open to truth, and uh, really willingness to go there and have that conversation. What a great gift that Catholic radio and other places can be to be open to that. We welcome your questions. We welcome your challenges. We welcome your feedback. Send those to alive at massimpact.us, alive at massimpact.us. And uh, we do invite you to partner with us in this mission of helping families discover, proclaim, live, and build the kingdom at massimpact.us. Until next time, thank you so much, Dr. Steve. God bless you all. is not a desirable extra in the Christian life. It's commanded by God. He lived a life of prayer. He didn't just teach about prayer. He didn't just sing about prayer and agree with prayer and nod at prayer, but he prayed the Savior, the Son of God, God in the flesh. You're going to be used by God if you pray. You're going to be anointed if you pray. You're going to have wisdom if you pray. 
One of the most powerful weapons in this world is parents and grandparents united in blessing their children and grandchildren. Please join us now in our daily parent blessing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, let your holy anointing be upon each of our children, grandchildren, and godchildren this day. In your sacred name, we claim them for you. We renounce all whispers, lies, and influences of the enemy. We pray right now that each know your loving presence, be forged in virtue, and be flooded with an abundance of your Holy Spirit to live fully their identity and mission in you, now and through all eternity. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Join us in helping to spread this prayer throughout the world at massimpact.us forward slash prayer card. This is an Ignite Flash Fire moment. Right now, can you think of one person you know who's struggling, in need of knowing God's love? If someone came to mind, God just spoke to your heart. We're going to light it up right now. Send them a quick message. It could be by Facebook, email, text message. Make it short and sweet. Simply tell them you were thinking about them. You appreciate them. You're praying for them. You're in it with them. That God loves them. If we respond to this simple flash fire prompting right now, together we'll move his kingdom a big step forward. Ignite Flash Fire is brought to you by MassImpact.us. Not just a moment, a movement. We are Brittany and Andrew Reinhardt, and this is our son, Solanus. This Advent, we really hope you will join us in embracing the Bethlehem Family Challenge of daily personal prayer, praying as a family in your home once a week, and three Tuesdays in Advent, joining us for adoration of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. At these events, there'll be praise and worship, a talk led by a speaker about a different element of family life, and an opportunity for prayer. The Live a Guide is simply you and your family having some fun together, sharing some life, asking each other the family fun questions, going through some check-in questions, then reading the scripture together and meditating on it together as a family. So we hope you'll join us this year at Presents for Christmas and in the Bethlehem Family Challenge. Solanus, do you want to say goodbye?